This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Last week, we reported on the ICJ ruling, possibility, plausibility of genocide in Gaza. What have we seen over the last 72 hours? The West sling mud at UN institutions, Labour MPs getting kicked out for talking about a genocide in Gaza. It, it really does feel like you know, you're through the looking glass and in the most sort of murderous way. Really, really awful. We're going to run through it all today. Um, I am joined throughout by the brilliant Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm really glad that I can make sense of the chaos with you. And also, I know this isn't about my feelings at all. And we have been involved in some pretty shameful chapters of history as a country. But when you look at the way in which the UK has just gleefully participated in a smear campaign against the only organisation uh, which is looking after Palestinian refugees and provides humanitarian aid and also backs their right of return, it makes you feel pretty ashamed to be British, I think. I think so too. And especially when, you know, you can't, you, know, you say, oh, it's the Tory government. Well, the Labour Party have been just as shameful over the past 72 hours. Let's get going. First of all, though, I will tell you I'm in more detail what's coming up later tonight. The Israeli far right have held a convention discussing resettling Gaza, um, so they haven't taken many lessons from the ICJ either. Labour have suspended another left-wing MP, this time for calling out the Gaza genocide, and three US military personnel have been killed in a drone attack. Um, we'll discuss what that means for the region. Stay tuned for all of that. First off, though, the International Court of Justice ruled on Friday that it's plausible Israel is committing genocidal acts in Gaza. It ordered Israel to act to prevent genocide in the Strip and to increase humanitarian aid into Gaza. Now, there are many ways you might have expected Western countries to respond to that historic court finding. Perhaps the UK would rethink its repeated claim that Israel's violence in Gaza is proportional. Maybe the US would reconsider its massive transfers of war funding to Israel. All very reasonable and moral reactions to that ruling they would have been. But instead, we got this. The UK, the US and at least 10 other countries have halted their funding to UNRWA. That's the UN department created specifically for Palestinian refugees and the largest humanitarian agency operating in Gaza. Today, another one of the largest donors to UNRWA, the EU Commission, also announced they are reviewing funding to the organisation. So not quite as bad as just cutting it, but we're not in good territory here. Um, all of this follows allegations from Israel that 12 UNRWA employees in Gaza had participated in the attacks of October the 7th. Now, for context, UNRWA employs 13,000 Palestinians in Gaza. 13,000. 12 are being accused of having taken part in the October 7th attack. So if these reports are all true, and that's a big if, then that means 0.09% of its staff had some involvement in those attacks, which is hardly a reason to scrap funding for an agency providing essential services for 2 million people. Right? What's more, so far, there has been no independent verification of the claims about these 12 staff members. The New York Times has seen a dossier sent by Israel to the US State Department that led to the funding shutdown. It reports this on the contents the Israeli dossier presented to US officials on Friday lists the names and jobs of the UNRWA employees and the allegations against them. 
The dossier said that Israeli intelligence officers had established the movements of six of the men inside Israel on October the 7th based on their phones. Others had been monitored while making phone calls inside Gaza, during which the Israelis say they discussed their involvement in the Hamas attack. Three others got text messages ordering them to report to muster points on October the 7th, and one was told to bring rocket-propelled grenades stored at his home, according to the dossier. The Israelis described 10 of the employees as members of Hamas, the militant group that controlled Gaza at the time of the October 7th attack. Another was said to be affiliated with another militant group, Islamic Jihad. The dossier accuses two of those UNRWA workers of helping to abduct Israelis and a further two of participating in raids on kibbutzes. Um, It also alleges that 200 UNRWA workers in Gaza are Hamas or Islamic Jihad, but it doesn't provide any evidence whatsoever for this claim. Why are people still believing this? Israel appears to have been aware of these allegations for some time, right? And yet, they were only shared with Western leaders on Fridays to the same day as the ICJ ruling against Israel. Okay, this is not a coincidence. And Britain, the US, and a host of other countries were happy to play ball. Over the weekend, they chose to immediately suspend all aid to the agency on the back of those fairly flimsy, I must say, reports. There was no independent investigation and no due process. But it did mean that media organizations, including the BBC, immediately shifted from discussing the International Court of Justice ruling, right, ruling that Israel could be committing genocide to a debate about whether all UN agencies in Gaza are actually Hamas. It could have been designed by the Israeli PR department. I mean, in fact, it probably was. Responding to the allegations about UNRWA, UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres said this. Of the 12 people implicated, nine were immediately identified and terminated by the Commissioner General of UNRWA, that's Philippe Lazzarini. One is confirmed dead and the identity of the two others is being clarified. Any UN employee involved in acts of terror will be held accountable, including through criminal prosecution. The Secretariat is ready to cooperate with a competent authority able to prosecute the individuals in line with the Secretariat's normal procedures for such cooperation. Guterres has also ordered an independent investigation. UNRWA is currently the primary humanitarian agency in Gaza, largely responsible for coordinating the delivery of what little aid there is to over 2 million people. Um, A large proportion of Gazans are currently sheltering in UNRWA schools, clinics and camps. And since the war began, at least 150 UNRWA employees have been killed. So over 150 have been killed. It turns out that 12 were perhaps part of the October 7th attack. I think it's the 150 who were killed that should be the more shocking statistic there. Unlike many other UN agencies, UNRWA doesn't have reserves. Instead, spending its funding as it receives it. And it doesn't operate only in Gaza, but serves all Palestinian refugees across five countries. According to Guterres, that means the agency will be unlikely to continue to operate in Gaza throughout February, with up to 60% of its budget now gone. On Channel 4 News, former UNRWA spokesperson Chris Guinness had this to say. The president of the court, an American judge, Donahue, made it clear in her judgment that impeding and restricting humanitarian assistance is a violation of the Genocide Convention. What does Rishi Sunak and Joe Biden do the very next day? They cut humanitarian assistance. A state party to the convention um, is doing that. And the US are the biggest backers, aren't they? They are, they are. So, So can the agency, which is 
a lifeline to so many people in Gaza. Yeah. Can it survive without that level of funding? Well, certainly UNRWA is facing an existential threat tonight. It's yeah. under huge political pressure, and it always has been from the Israelis and the far right, and now the Israeli cabinet in America, uh, and also and, and, and others. Nothing uh, like this, surely. No. Well, Trump defunded the agency to the tune of more than three hundred million in two thousand and eighteen. Now you've so, got Finland, Italy, yep, the yep, US, yeah, yeah. Canada, Australia, yep. and everyone else as well. I mean, do, do, do you think there's a risk it doesn't survive? UNRWA has to survive, and UNRWA will survive. It may have to make trimmings, it may have to cut services, there may be huge internal reforms. But to be clear, it is the UN General Assembly, 193 governments in the world, who give UNRWA its mandate. So, you know, governments like this, like Rishi Sunat's government and others, the Americans and the Finns and the Italians and whoever else, can cut aid. It's the General Assembly that gives the mandate. So that will be there, and although these Western governments want to do whatever they're doing, defund for the moment, it will continue. UNRWA also delivers humanitarian work in Syria, in Lebanon, in Jordan, mm -hmm. and the West Bank. Tonight, as the Middle East risks a regional conflagration, that human development work, thanks to these frankly irresponsible decisions, are now under threat. If I could just end by saying, it's been said on Twitter X, this is a bit like suspending funding to the NHS because Lucy Letby killed some babies. Really, really useful analogy there. Now, it's no surprise that these is, or it's no surprise that Israel released these allegations on the same day the ICJ found genocidal claims against the country plausible. And it's no surprise that its Western backers have leapt to support a new way of starving the Palestinians in Gaza. This was Cabinet Minister Kebi Badenoch speaking on Sunday. It is important for people to understand why we have done this. Uh, there have been very significant allegations made that people from the UN's Relief Works Agency uh, participated or certainly were privy, had privy knowledge to uh, the October 7th attacks. That's extremely serious. And I think it is quite right that we suspend payments uh, to them. Labour initially supported the Tory position, but after a backlash have softened their position on UNRWA funding. On the particular individuals, I mean, that is absolutely appalling. They've, they've been, been suspended. I think their contracts with UNRWA have been terminated. But this is a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. Now, as it happens, a few years ago, I've actually visited the UNRWA headquarters in Jerusalem when I visited the occupied Palestinian territory. So I've seen for myself the work that UNRWA uh, do. We've got to get more aid into Gaza because of what is happening. It is a catastrophe. It's why, for example, we've also called for a halt in the fighting, an immediate humanitarian truce, a ceasefire, a sustained ceasefire is needed. But uh, UNRWA programmes have to continue. Current UNRWA programmes have to continue. And we need to hear from ministers today what's happening with future funding because we should be getting, we need to get more aid into Gaza, not less. So the government should think again about that? Well, we need current, we need current programmes need to continue and we need an explanation from ministers urgently as to how funding is going to be restored. That's a characteristically sort of vague statement from a Labour politician. Ashworth appears to want UNRWA operations to continue and in fact aid to increase, but Labour have been reluctant to actually say if they oppose the Tory decision to suspend it in the first place, right? We want an explanation as to how it's going to get restarted again. Why not just say cutting the funding of an organisation with 13,000 staff members because 12 of them have done a misdeed is a silly policy decision. It's more than a silly policy decision. It's a murderous policy decision. Um, other politicians have been more clear on Saturday um, as other states withdrew funding. Ireland's foreign minister tweeted this, full confidence 
in UN Lazzarini, so that's the UNRWA head, decision to immediately suspend UNRWA staff suspected of participation in the heinous attacks of October the 7th to investigate thoroughly and show zero tolerance on terror. Ireland has no plan to suspend funding for UNRWA's vital Gaza work. Um, The Norwegian mission in Palestine said this, the situation in Gaza is catastrophic and UNRWA is the most important humanitarian organisation there. Norway continues our support for the Palestinian people through UNRWA. International support for Palestine is needed now more than ever. And this was the response from Scottish First Minister Hamza Youssef. To be clear, the Scottish government has not paused or withdrawn aid to UNRWA. We have previously provided as much as we can within our financial constraints. We will always seek to do more where we can and urge others to continue to provide aid to the people of Gaza. Ash, we speculated that potentially the ICJ ruling would you know, change the discourse on this, right? Suddenly, no longer can you say a genocide is going on in, in, in Gaza and people say, oh, that's ridiculous, how dare you say that, right? It, it has the legitimacy now of the ICJ. Not them saying a genocide is happening, but saying it's plausible that a genocide is happening. In fact, you know, the West seems to have responded by directly attacking UN institutions, right? I don't think that's a coincidence either. The judge um, at the ICJ was sort of referencing statements from UNRWA officials, and now they're saying, oh, UNRWA, because 12 out of 13,000 staff members um, took part in an attack. They're all Hamas. What do you think of it? Well, I think the first thing to point out is that the reason why the US has spearheaded these efforts to defund UNRWA is to signal Western impunity. People in Washington, people in Westminster absolutely cannot stand that it was a global South nation, an African nation at that, standing up for the system of international law that the West likes to tell itself it invented and is the rightful custodian of. I think there's a real sense of trying to re-establish a global hierarchy, making it clear it is America that sits at the top. So the ICJ can say in its ruling, humanitarian efforts not only must be preserved, but must be expanded. And what's the very first thing America makes its priority is the defunding of a humanitarian program. That is not a coincidence, right? It is absolutely not a coincidence. It is sending two middle fingers up to the International Court of Justice. And what we're seeing in terms of the governments and the states which aren't going along with the US's defunding of UNRWA, Norway, Scotland, Spain, is that these are states which are more willing to pursue a foreign policy which is independent of the United States of America. Countries like ours, the UK, once more we've exposed ourselves as being <clears throat> as being content to be little more than a pathetic tag-along to US foreign policy. It is deeply, deeply embarrassing. Now, let's talk about Israel's view of UNRWA. Israel has long accused UNRWA of being in bed with Hamas, of Hamas being embedded within the organization. That's what they say about absolutely everyone and everything in the Gaza Strip and indeed internationally that they don't like. And it's pretty convenient. Every time Israel says that something is Hamas, it gets defunded or bombed. and No one really has to look into whether or not that's true. Or if they do, the damage has been done anyway. Right? That's what they've always done. They do it when they kill journalists. They do it when they bomb hospitals. They do it when they bomb schools. They do it when they bomb apartment buildings. It's absolutely no different to the way in which they discuss UNRWA. There is a long-standing 
dynamic in which UNRWA has been a particular thorn in Israel's side because one, by alleviating some of the worst conditions in both the West Bank and Gaza, UNRWA is actively frustrating the work of Israel to make these territories as uninhabitable as possible for Palestinians so that they don't want to stay. UNRWA, by alleviating some of those conditions, has been frustrating the work of Israeli ethnic cleansing. And the second thing is that UNRWA, as a UN institution, was set up specifically for the Palestinians who were displaced during the Nakba of 48. That's why UNRWA exists in the first place. And UNRWA protects and upholds a particular principle that Palestinian refugee status doesn't just end with the generation of people who were themselves displaced in 1948, that it is a status which is passed down and that the descendants of those refugees should have the right of return to the land of historic Palestine. Now that, of course, completely flies in the face of the Israeli state ideology of Zionism, which is that you should have a Jewish majority state between the river and the sea. And that is why for a long time Israel has wanted to see the end of UNRWA. So what we have here is a confluence of interests. It's been Israel's interest for a very, very long time to undermine, to damage the integrity of, to end the funding to UNRWA. You've got the way in which October 7th has changed the uh, climate in which Israel operates in. There is a great deal more impunity, a sense of a carte blanche being offered by powerful Western nations. And you've also got the US wanting to reinscribe a global order in which it sits at the top. There isn't a law or a court that can bind the US or its allies or what it deems to be the US's geopolitical interests. And by leading this mission of defunding UNRWA, they're making sure that they communicate to the world all of your courts, all of your law cases, they mean nothing. We can do exactly what we want. And as I think, uh, you know, what, just as, as, as citizens of this country, we should demand more from our government and our politicians. It is utterly embarrassing and is so undignified the way we go along with that project of US hegemony. It is embarrassing because not even our hegemony we're standing up for. It's someone else's. It's disgusting. Let's go on to a slightly different aspect of this story. If you read the Saturday papers the day after the ICJ ruling, you'd be forgiven for thinking you dreamed it, right? This is the front page from The Times. Now, we, it says we've got an update on the Nottingham killing case and a big picture of Camilla, but nothing on the ICJ. In fact, you had to turn to page 42 to find its only mention. The only mention of the ICJ's ruling on the Telegraph's front page was a story about how the government was attacking it. Only The Guardian and the Financial Times gave the court's judgment any decent space on their front pages. Business as usual amongst the UK's media class and business as usual in Israel too. These were some of the scenes from a conference held in Jerusalem on Sunday night calling for the resettlement of Gaza after the war. The conference dubbed, quote, Settlement Brings Security and Victory, so that's the name, was attended by 12 ministers from Benjamin Netanyahu's government. It saw Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir repeat his calls 
for Palestinians to be removed from Gaza. Also speaking at the conference was right-wing finance minister Bezalel Smotrich speaking about the 2005 removal of settlers from Gaza. He said, quote, we knew what that would bring and we tried to prevent it. Without settlements, there is no security. A map adorned the conference center's wall showing Gaza with several Israeli settlements marked out, um, some on top of Palestinian towns. Elsewhere, despite the ICJ ruling that Israel has to increase the flow of humanitarian aid, Israeli civilians have been blocking aid from entering Gaza. Dozens of Israelis have joined a protest at Karem Shalom, the only functioning border crossing into Gaza from Israel. CNN spoke to some of those involved. Don't the army and police stop you? They now they tried, but we came a lot of people. And they are with us because... They, a pause as he finds the right words that the soldiers sympathize with them. All of us were the same. We have the same kids inside Gaza. Sefi organizes the protests. In the last four days, have effectively shut the border. Their demand no aid until all hostages are released. We're saying the, the simple thing, very, very simple. We're saying that you want humanitarian aid, okay, we will give you everything. First of all, give us our people. More than 130 hostages still held in Gaza. Attitudes among some Israelis are hardening. It's very simple. Hamas is killing us. We're at war. In a war, you don't give help to your enemies. Since the war began, many Israelis saw aid to Gaza pre-war about 500 trucks a day as tantamount to backing Hamas. But this is the first time protesters are actually stopping the convoys, already operating way below the minimum the UN says is needed. Ash, I mean, one of the main things in the ICJ ruling was to say that Israel has to um, facilitate the entrance of more aid into Gaza. And as I say, I've already said, that's because they are the occupying occupying power. Right? This isn't an act of charity. If you are an occupying power, you have a responsibility under international law to provide the means of life in an area, right? Um, can you see them sort of managing to, to come up with some kind of explanation that they can report back to in the ICJ where they say, in a month, sorry, to the ICJ, where they can say, oh yeah, we've, we, we have provided enough aid. Um, to Gaza, especially when you've got these sort of popular movements from the ground saying starve them essentially so we can steal their homes. What I can see happening is that they'll lie, <laughs> essentially, um, just like the lies that were uttered in their defence, that they provided safe passage for Palestinians, ways out of aerial bombardment. That wasn't true. They bombed areas that Palestinians had been instructed to flee to, talking about the way in which they had facilitated aid to the Gaza Strip when the IDF had also fired on Palestinian civilians gathered to receive shipments of flour and of water. I have absolutely no doubt that you know, Israel's going to deliver something at the end of the month. I also have absolutely no doubt that it's going to be from top to bottom a load of bullshit. Sorry to be crude, but it just absolutely is. This is not a government which has any respect for the institutions of international law. It never has, by the way, from the moment of its foundation to the um, UN uh, resolution to allow 
displaced Palestinian refugees to return, all the way to the expansion of settlements to the enduring blockade on Gaza. Israel has never, ever cared one jot for the procedures of international law because it is backed by the United States. And you see what's happening over the past few days. You have a conference attended by cabinet ministers in Netanyahu's government. You've got protesters blocking aid. What this tells me is that almost every aspect of Israeli society, and we're talking about what's powerful here, sees no problem with breaking international law if they deem it to be in their interest, in the interest of ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza. The most milquetoast liberal position that you're going to find in mainstream Israeli politics isn't an anti-occupation position. It's a position of, oh, well, you know, we tried, but the Palestinians never wanted peace. You know, this is a culture, a political culture, which has been self-radicalizing because it begins as a settler colony and in order to survive as a settler colony, must move in the direction of apartheid and ethnic cleansing. This is a logical consequence of the very ideology that Israel was founded on. And if I sound angry, it's because I am. It's because in the UK, one of the things that we've had to do is this sort of mad dance where we're insisting that, oh, everyone wants a two-state solution, really, and oh, it's just naughty Hamas that don't want one. Israel has never been serious about a Palestinian state. There was a moment where Israel entertained the notion of an entity which was less than a state. That was the Oslo Accords. But there has not been an Israeli government which has recognized the state of Palestine. So when we're seeing these awful images of Israeli far-right protesters blocking aid trucks, when we see what Smotrich is saying to this settler's jamboree, that is a continuation of the foundation of, a st of the state of Israel. It is not a deviation from the foundation of the state of Israel. On the two-state solution, I think that, you know, potentially there could have, it could have worked if you had a lot of outside pressure. So if, if, if the US had said, we are forcing you to push for a two-state solution, then maybe it would have happened, right? The reason it didn't is because, you know, the Americans and the global community said, well, you know, if you, if you don't agree to a two-state solution, there shall be no consequences for you anyway. So guess what? Um, the Israelis chose the whole of greater Israel. Um, and that's why we are in the situation we are in today. Let's go to our next story. Three U.S. service members have been killed in Jordan after a U.S. base was hit by a drone attack. A further 34 were injured in the blasts, many of them seriously. It's the first time that U.S. military personnel have been killed by enemy fire in the Middle East since the war in Gaza began, and it may mark a dangerous turning point in events in the region. Little is known about the U.S. base that came under attack, but it's called Tower 22 and is situated in a remote but strategically important location in Jordan. It sits where Jordan borders both Syria and Iraq and is thought to serve as a supply hub for another U.S. base in Syria. The killing of U.S. military personnel has dramatically heightened the possibility of further escalation in the region. In a statement, a militia calling themselves Islamic resistance claimed responsibility for the attack, saying it was, quote, a continuation of our approach to resisting the American occupation forces in Iraq and the region. The U.S. has around 2,500 troops in Iraq and a further 900 
in Syria. And the militia's connections to Iran has led to calls from Republicans in the United States for Biden to make a direct strike against the country. In response to the attacks, Biden himself has said this. Today, America's heart is heavy. Last night, three U.S. service members were killed and many wounded during an unmanned aerial drone attack on our forces stationed in northeast Jordan near the Syria border. While we are still gathering the facts of this attack, we know it was carried out by radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq. We will carry on their commitment to fight terrorism and have no doubt we will hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing. Iran has responded to that accusation that they were involved saying this. Iran had no connection and had nothing to do with the attack on the US base. There is a conflict between US forces and resistance groups in the region which reciprocate retaliatory attacks. The attack is the latest and the most deadly of the more than 150 strikes carried out by Iran-backed militias against US troops in the region since Israel's war in Gaza began on October the 7th. Just last week, four U.S. service members were injured in a drone attack on a base in Iraq after it came under heavy rocket fire. At the same time, the U.S. is trading blows with the Houthis in the Red Sea, who have pledged to stop commercial traffic until Israel withdraws from Gaza. And, of course, Israel and Hezbollah continue to fire rockets across Lebanon's southern border, with Hezbollah declaring a readiness for war. So the situation is tense. Palestinian journalist Rami Khoury of the American University of Beirut told Democracy Now! how the United States could resolve it. There is a possibility to stop all this militarism, which is the uh, ceasefire that can be installed now quickly if the U.S. wants, and then moving quickly to a permanent peace negotiation, which will require new leaders in Israel and, and in Palestine and other places, more credible leaders, uh, but a negotiated peace that resolves the fundamental Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the wider Arab-Israeli conflict, which will not, long, will not need uh, 35, 40 American bases and constant, never-ending warfare. And this, is, this process is going to go on. It's going to keep expanding if we're, if we're not careful. I don't think we're going to get to a full-fledged war with Iran and, and, and Hamas and Hezbollah and others fighting against the U.S. and Israel. That would be a catastrophe for the whole region. I don't think we're going to get there, but what we have now is a low-intensity, uh, 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 diversified regional warfare, and I think that's going to continue. I mean, what's dangerous here, I don't think the American government wants a war with Iran. I know sometimes people in our comments disagree. I think they'd prefer to pivot to Asia and don't want to get dragged into war against a country of 90 million people with a pretty advanced military. Let's be clear, that would be a disaster. Iran does not want to get invaded, right? Neither of these countries, I think, want, want a war. There is one country that wouldn't mind a war breaking out, Israel, because they think it would sort of tie the United States to the region. They're terrified of Iran getting nuclear weapons because that would limit their freedom of movement in the region. Potentially, Hamas wouldn't mind either. I mean, it seems to me that sort of one plausible explanation for what they did on October the 7th was to try and sort of broaden out the conflict because Hamas um, felt that the Gazans were becoming isolated. So they're the only two groups that I think wouldn't mind um, a regional war. No one else seems to want it. But the United States seems to be willing to just sort of get dragged into one against its will. And it's sort of, I find it very interesting how sort of the, the media narrative has changed around this so quickly. Everyone's suddenly talking about how do we contain Iran? What do we do about Iran? What should we, you know, what do we do about Israel? What do we do about the United States? Right? Everyone's like, oh, these are Iran proxies, right? Iran are backing these rebel groups and these rebel groups have just killed free American soldiers. Well, 
America is backing the Israeli government, and the Israeli government have just killed 26,000 Gazans, right? Who is the irresponsible actor in the Middle East? Right? At least Iran can claim it's got some sort of defensive interest there, right? Because Iran says, you know, we, yes, we are funding um, the, these groups which we're allied to, the Houthis, rebel groups in Iran and Syria, Hezbollah. But one of the reasons they do that um, is because they think that provides them an insurance mechanism against being invaded themselves. So, you know, Iran in a conventional war, I mean, it would be bloody for everyone involved, but it's not going to fare well if America attacks it, right? But what they can say is if you attack us, well, it's not just Iran that will suffer. We will, you know, encourage Hezbollah to, to attack Israel. We'll encourage the Houthis to, to block the Red Sea again, et cetera, et cetera. It provides them an insurance mechanism having these, these proxies around. It's much harder to make that argument for the Americans, right? If the Americans withdrew all of their forces from the Middle East tomorrow, people in America would be safe. Maybe a few business interests would be interrupted, but people in America would be safe. So, you know, who is really um, the meddler here? Is it Iran or is it the United States? In any case, um, as the expert there just suggested, the short-term way of ending this risk of regional conflict or a further regional conflict, is a ceasefire in Gaza. It would be in everyone's interest, apart from the extremists in Israel, who want to clear out Gaza of Palestinians so they can reoccupy it themselves. Let's go on to our next story. In the modern Labour Party, palling around with genocidal politicians is celebrated, while calling out genocides gets you kicked out. The latest development in this grim tale involves the left-wing MP Kate Ossimore, her very serious crime was sending out this email to local Labour members on Holocaust Memorial Day. So it said, tomorrow is Holocaust Memorial Day, an international day to remember the six million Jews murdered during the Holocaust, the millions of others murdered under Nazi persecution of other groups, and more recent genocides in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, and now Gaza. Now, she is sending this the day after the ICJ ruled that there is a plausible case that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. It's the argument that was put forward by South Africa in that case, and it's the argument that the ICJ said was credible, was plausible. Lots of people weren't very happy about this. So clearly, some complaints were made to Kate Ossimore, and in the end, um, she apologized. So she tweeted this, Holocaust Memorial Day is a day to remember the six million Jews killed in the Holocaust and the genocides that have occurred since. I apologize for any offense caused by my reference to the ongoing humanitarian disaster in Gaza as part of that period of remembrance. Yes, apparently we are only allowed to refer to the genocidal war on Gaza as a humanitarian crisis, as if the 26,000 deaths and risk of famine were caused by extreme weather or an earthquake, right? It's always the passive voice. In any case, that apology wasn't enough for some. The Jewish labor movement released this statement. This week, we've been commemorating the murder of six million Jews in the Holocaust and those who perished in subsequent genocides. Sadly, Kate Ossimore MP used Holocaust Memorial Day to make an inappropriate and offensive comparison to the war in Gaza. Her subsequent non-apology rang hollow. I'm not sure why this is a non-apology. These days, we know the Labour Party is better than this. We join others, including her own CLP, in calling on Labour to suspend her while they investigate. Right, so saying... I mean, I don't think she needed to apologize in the first place, right? It's a credible case um, that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. I think it's actually more important to speak about present genocides than past ones because you can actually change the outcome there, right? This, to me, seems like a reasonable email to send to Labour members. Um, However, the Jewish Labour movement didn't like it. Other right-wing MPs didn't like it. And within 24 hours, Kate Ossimore 
was gone, suspended. The whip was taken from her. She joins um, Andy McDonald, who was suspended last year for saying, quote, we will not rest until we have justice, until all people, Israelis and Palestinians between the river and the sea, can live in peaceful liberty. Right? I, I still think Andy McDonald's suspension was even more bizarre than this. That's, that's the most anodyne thing you can possibly say um, about Israel-Palestine. Uh, Miss Rahman, a left-wing member of Labour's NEC, has pointed out that the Labour Party appears to have a double standard when it comes to allegations of anti-Semitism. This is what Mish tweeted. There are clear double standards in how Labour treats the cases of Steve Reid and Barry to that of Diane Abbott and Kate Ossimore. Like Steve, Kate too apologised and deleted swiftly, but Kate got suspended and Steve not. I wonder what the difference is. Now, many have interpreted the difference to be based on, on race and gender, right? So the, the two people he cited that weren't suspended were two white guys. The two people he cited that were suspended were two black women. Now, that's, of course, possible. I actually think it probably has more to do with politics. Now, this is from a BBC report on the Barry Shearman case. Um, so this is back in 2020. Huddersfield MP apologises for alleged anti-Semitic tweet. Um, and his tweet was genuinely very anti-Semitic, right? So um, they write this. Barry Shearman tweeted about a run on silver shekels in an apparent reference to a rumor about two high-profile Jewish businessmen missing out on peerages. Now, you don't really talk about shekels, you know, in a, in a non-anti-Semitic way. Um, as for Shearman's defense, after deleting the tweet about silver shekels, he tweeted this. I have fought anti-Semitism all my political life and have been a Labour friend of Israel since joining as a student at the LSC. I am deeply sorry that my clumsy tweet has caused offence. The key part of that statement, I think, I have been a Labour friend of Israel. I'm the kind of guy whose anti-Semitism you shouldn't mind. Ash, this to me, you know, again, this is in the context of the ICJ's historic ruling on Friday, is just phenomenal, right? This is, however, where it was always going to go, and that's not because Kate Ossimore did anything particularly egregious. If we say that Holocaust Memorial Day is to remember the Holocaust and subsequent genocides, and the ICJ has said there is a plausible case here that Israel is committing genocidal acts, there is nothing inappropriate about making references to Gaza during Holocaust Memorial Day. I mean, I even think that even if the ICJ hadn't uh, made a provisional ruling saying that the case of genocidal acts was plausible, it would still be appropriate. I think that it would still be appropriate to make references to any, you know, huge loss of human life anywhere in the world, because I think that that's a natural thing to do. You reflect on the Holocaust. I think you would also reflect on other horrors of war. Of war. But you're right to say that this is entirely political. And for me, this is entirely what the IHRA definition of anti Semitism, which was adopted by the Labour Party in 2021 under intense pressure because of the anti Semitism scandals and how it played out in the media, this is always what it intended to do. Um, seven out of the 11 examples of anti Semitism, as defined in the IHRA document, concern how people talk about the state of Israel. So it wasn't a definition where most of it was about the way in which anti-Semitic tropes are wielded against Jewish people. It had an overwhelming preoccupation with how people discuss Israel. One of those examples was about comparisons between 
the Holocaust or Nazi Germany and Israel or anything to do with Jewish people. Now, these aren't comparisons that I think anyone should make lightly. These aren't comparisons that I think anyone should make because they're wishing to taunt Jewish people with their greatest trauma, you know, the, the, the most egregious historical wrong ever committed against them. But to say that you can never make any form of comparison between a settler colonial state which practices apartheid, which practices ethnic cleansing, which is, by many people's opinion, including uh, the state of South Africa, waging a genocidal war against the people of Gaza, to say that you can never draw any parallels between that and fascist Germany, to me, is purely about controlling discourse and trying to make Israel a special case, where the special case goes, well, we were formed out of the horrors of 1930s and 1940s Europe. Therefore, we can never be held to the same standards of international law which grew out of that horror. Right, We're exempt from it because of what we have experienced as a people. I don't think that anyone really agrees with that. When you put it like that, when you say, well, because of the history of anti-Semitism in Europe, because of the history of the Holocaust in the 1930s and 40s, it means that you can never draw parallels between that and what is being done to the Palestinians. I think most reasonable people, people would say, no, that's that's." unfair. That's sort of stacking the deck in Israel's favour. But that's precisely what the IHRA bakes into the Labour Party. Now, the IHRA is very, very selectively implemented. There have been countless occasions where people have, for instance, treated Jewish people in the diaspora as interchangeable with the state of Israel, just most of the time they're doing that, they're doing that in support of the state of Israel. The IHRA definition of anti-Semitism is never wheeled out to demand consequences for those people. It is a document which facilitates the selective policing of language in the interests of the Israeli state and Israeli state ideology. And this is exactly what it was intended to do. So I feel for Kate Osimo. I see why she was forced to apologize. I don't I don't think she should have, quite frankly, but this was always going to be what the IHRA was used for inside the Labour Party. I just think there's also sort of another important thing to mention here, which is she isn't really comparing what's happening in Gaza to the Holocaust, right? She said the millions of other people murdered under Nazi persecution of other groups and more and more recent genocides in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, and now Gaza. Right? So she's not saying oh, this, it's a day to remember the Holocaust and to remember what's going on in Gaza. It doesn't seem like she's trying to taunt anyone, right? She's, there's a list of other genocides that have happened since 1945. You know, that's also in the official documentation um, from sort of the Holocaust Memorial Trust and the, the Holocaust Memorial Day Society or what it's called. Um, and she's added Gaza, which, you know, as we've said, the South African government thinks is a genocide and the International Court of Justice has said it's very plausibly a genocide. This doesn't even seem to fall into that category of potentially taunting. Right? This is just a very reasonable listing that with these other genocides. I think also I've sort of read that you know the number of people killed in in, in Gaza so far is about the the same amount of the people who were killed in Bosnia during the entire um, you know Bosnian genocide. Right. So it, we're not talking about things that are of a completely different scale here. Just seems vindictive. Also, I do think you know the, the fact that you 
you know, she's apologized. And then you have the Jewish labor movement saying, apologies are not enough. She has to be suspended. It's just, just seems, I don't know, it seems not good to me, right? It seems really, really not good. Um, and I, I think for sort of community relations, it's also quite bad, right? I don't necessarily agree with Mish Rahman that sort of this is happening because um, Kate Osamore is a black woman. It also happened um, to um, Andy McDonald, of course, getting suspended for saying something that was not at all anti-Semitic. But clearly, um, what's going on in Israel-Palestine is something which does motivate different communities in, in Britain and people have very strong opinions about. And if the Jewish labor movement can just get someone kicked out of the Labour Party for saying that what's happening in Gaza is a, is a genocide, I think that's not at all healthy. Um, I mentioned palling around with alleged war criminals at the start of this segment. Now, that's, of course, a reference to this photo of Margaret Hodge, Ruth Smith, and others with Isaac Herzog, whose statements were referenced as being potentially genocidal by the ICJ. And we have another update for you on the Labour Party. You may remember this clip from last week of a Palestinian man interrupting a speech by Angela Rayner. Thanks, Johnny. And look, Tame is going to save the world. That's why us three are up here. But um, the change in this country is come when you take a place and asking and demanding for ceasefire. I okay. lost my family in Gaza. Just a second, I want to show you my mom. I lost my family in Gaza. If the ceasefire is taking place, I just say I'm not ready. What kind of family is that? I need my mother. I need my mother. The only thing I need. That was Angela Rayner doing nothing as a man whose family were killed in Gaza was wrestled out of her room. So holding up pictures of his family who had been killed, wrestled out of the room, she does nothing. And it turns out that Angela Rayner has in fact met the man in question. So the man who was dragged out, she had met him on a previous occasion. Now, Owen Jones um, tweeted this because he interviewed the gentleman in question. And he tweets, in 2019, Angela Rayner met Dalul al-Nader when she visited his shop. She told him, I support Palestine. Palestine must be free. Owen says now she just stands there as he's dragged out of her meeting after his family were butchered in a labour-backed onslaught. These are just terrible, terrible people, right? You've got someone who, in 2019, as a different leadership of the Labour Party, she goes and meets a Palestinian guy. I support Palestine. Palestine must be free. Then in this guy's darkest hour, right, his family have been killed in Gaza. She won isn't talking anything, you know, you never hear Angela Rayner talking about Palestine must be free in you know, a, a time when it's incredibly relevant to do so. But this guy, who when it was easy for her, you know, she was very happy to embrace Palestine must be free. Now he holds up pictures of his family who've been killed by Israel and she just stands there as security guards drag him out of a room while he's holding up pictures of his dead family. Completely, completely appalling and Angela Rayner should be ashamed. Next story. An interview between former Israeli ambassador to the UN, Danny Danon, and Sky host, Bel Donati, has caused some controversy. Take a look. You've called for a voluntary migration of Palestinians from Gaza. In November, you co-authored a piece that appeared in the Wall Street Journal. You suggested the ethnic cleansing of some of Gaza's population to Western uh, countries that would accept you, you, you the refugees. The, the exact quote from that article, one idea is for countries around the world to accept limited numbers of Gazan families who have expressed a desire to relocate. Do you stand by those statatements? You know, ethnic cleansing, that's a word you used. 
If you read my article, I spoke about voluntary immigration. I, I read that article. I did okay. read that article, so and I've just quoted let from let it. Let me remind you that you spoke about ethnic cleansing. I spoke about voluntary immigration. And I think anyone in the world who voluntarily wants to move to another country should be eligible to do that. Uh, but mm. you know what? It's not the first time that we hear those allegations. I yeah, think the sort of, yes, the sort of voluntary relocation of, of many Jewish people during the Holocaust, I imagine. I, it is not how can you even, how can relocation. Let us, shame on you for that comparison. Let us please, let us, a shameful let us, equation. Let us please not, go to this objective. You speak about the Holocaust. You said, you said earlier, today, you said earlier. This is pure anti-Semitism in what you just said. Mr. Danon, the Holocaust to what's happening today in Gaza. Mr. Danon, you talked you about eradicating Hamas. Shame on you, you talked for about... this behavior. Shame on you for this equation. You should apologize for what you just said on, 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 on record about the Holocaust. How can you even compare that? In the run-up to that particular exchange, Danny Danon had just been incredibly rude throughout, constantly talking over the host, not listening to the questions, constantly shouting. And he did also write a very disgraceful article calling for migration out of Gaza and out Danon. As he said there, said the migration he wanted would be voluntary. Um, but of course, it's difficult to see how voluntary migration can be if a country is under siege, if a territory is completely under siege, if there's famine conditions, if people are being bombed constantly, right? That's not going to be voluntary migration. Choosing to hand over your wallet instead of getting shot by a mugger doesn't make it a free exchange, right? Oh, yeah, but you, you agreed to give him your wallet. Yeah, he had a gun against my head. That said, the invocation of the Holocaust was provocative, and after an online storm, Sky made this apology. In an interview earlier today with Israeli politician Danny Danon, a Sky News presenter made a comparison between Mr. Danon's comments on Israel's war with Hamas and the treatment of Jewish people in the Holocaust. Sky News recognised the complete inappropriateness of this comparison and the offensive nature of those comments. Sky News would like to apologise unreservedly for the comparison and to Mr. Danon personally for making the comparison. That apology wasn't enough, though, for Danny Danon, though. He's written a letter from his office in the Knesset calling for Bel Donati to be sacked. He shared the letter on Twitter saying this, Earlier today, I submitted a formal letter to the Sky News Group requesting the immediate termination of anchor Bel Donati. During our interview last Friday, Mr. Nati made a shocking comparison between the present situation in Gaza and the Holocaust. In 2024, there should be no tolerance for news anchors who propagate anti-Semitism and draw inappropriate parallels between the democratic state of Israel and the Nazis. The one thing I hate about this, I mean, I, I hate that you've got a sort of foreign politician who thinks it's within their right to tell Sky News what hosts they should and shouldn't sack. But also, inappropriate parallels between the democratic state of Israel and the Nazis. Now, if you're in Gaza, if your water is being cut off, if you're being restricted from having any food, if your home has been destroyed, it does not matter a damn to you if the country doing to this to you has elections or not, right? They don't get to vote. And they are being subjected to horrific aerial bombardment and siege conditions. So it can't be doing anything too bad. It's a democratic state of Israel. We've also seen, you know, the people who vote in that state are trying to actively stop um, aid going into Gaza, right? The, the fact that that government is elected doesn't mean it can't be doing crimes of humanity against a people who don't have the vote because they're living under occupation, under apartheid conditions. You know, it's a bit like if South Africa said, how can you accuse us of being bad to black people um, in South Africa? We're a democratic country. Yeah, but only white people can vote. Ash, we've heard a lot of inappropriate Nazi comparisons 
since the, the start of the bombardment of Gaza. They've mostly, though, come from Israeli politicians, you know, saying everyone is, is the Nazi. Well, Gaza, not the Hamas of the Nazis. That's the one that they say the most, isn't it? Um, and then they often sort of use it about the UN as well. They went to the UN with these sort of yellow triangles on to sort of say the UN are treating us like Nazi Germany. Whether or not you think that, you know, this Skyhouse invocation of the Holocaust was appropriate, I mean, seems a little bit hypocritical, doesn't it, to say that this person should lose her job? It's completely coherent in terms of what the Israeli position actually is. The Israeli position isn't that no one can ever draw parallels between the present day and Nazi Germany, the events of the Holocaust, uh, the spread of fascism and anti-Semitism hand in hand across Europe during that time. That's not their position. The position is only we can do it in the interest of our policy of apartheid, occupation and ethnic cleansing. It's as simple as that. And unfortunately, because we never really wanted to interrogate, I think, many of those aspects of the IHRA definition, because the anti-Semitism crisis here was so heated and you came under so much fire if you did. There were very few of us at that time saying that this is a dangerous way to define racism because it curtails legitimate free expression. And when I'm talking about legitimate free expression, I'm not talking about invoking the Nazis or the Holocaust as a sort of trump card whenever you're engaging with a Jewish person or indeed an Israeli person. I do think that that's highly inappropriate. I do think that that is taunting and I do think that that is a, an expression of racism when it's taken lightly. But today I was listening to an episode of This American Life where it was an interview with a woman who has three children uh, she was trapped in Gaza with her husband, but because she had Egyptian nationality, she was able to get out. The offer was for her to escape Gaza with her three children, but she would she would have had to leave her husband behind. And you're listening to this interview with her and she's talking about the fact that she doesn't want to leave him. She talked about how they fell in love, that he's the second half of her. He's the half of you know her children, that her children are begging her not to to leave Gaza for the safety of Egypt and leave their father behind. And meanwhile, their father is, he's furious with her for not fleeing with the children. He's saying, I'll be fine. I'm an adult. You have to take them. You have to save them. You cannot, you cannot condemn our children and yourself to death. And when you're listening to that experience of making the choice between staying or going, leaving with your family torn in two or staying with your family intact, that is, I think, resonant with some of the accounts of Jews having to flee Germany and German-occupied territories where parents had to make the decision of whether to send their children onto the kinder transport without them or risk being sent to the death camps altogether. There are, there, are, there are parallels in that human experience. And I don't think it's taunting to draw those parallels. I think it's deeply human. And it makes me very angry. It makes me very angry that it's a one-way dynamic, that it's one-way traffic, that Israel gets to abuse in it gets to abuse the history of the Holocaust in the way in which it invokes it to carry out 
war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and indeed genocidal acts to this day. And when people want to draw comparisons because there are relevant parallels, that they're disparaged as anti-Semites. I think that's, that's just wrong. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. Come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.